0: Welcome to Season 8 of EdTech Insiders, where we speak to educators, founders, investors, thought leaders, and the industry experts who are shaping the global education technology industry. Every week, we bring you the Week in EdTech, important updates from the EdTech field, including news about core technologies and issues we know will influence the sector, like artificial intelligence, extended reality, education politics, and more. We also conduct in-depth interviews with a wide variety of EdTech thought leaders and bring you insights and conversations from EdTech conferences all around the world. Remember to subscribe, follow, and tell your EdTech friends about the podcast and to check out the EdTech Insiders Substack newsletter. Thanks for being part of the EdTech Insiders community. Enjoy the show. Pedro Martinez was named Chicago Public Schools Chief Executive Officer in 2021, the first Latino in the city's history to hold the position outside of an interim capacity. Martinez has more than 30 years of experience in the private, nonprofit, and public education sectors. He's previously served as superintendent of the San Antonio Independent School District, superintendent in residence for the Nevada Department of Education, and superintendent of the Washoe County School District in Reno, Nevada. Martinez was born in Aguascalientes, Mexico, and came to Chicago with his family at the age of five in search of a better life. He credits the education he received in Chicago public schools with changing the trajectory of his life. Dr. Maria Armstrong is the Executive Director of the Association of Latino Administrators and Superintendents, ALAS. Her career in education includes serving as a teacher, school counselor, assistant principal, principal, Director of English Language Learners, Assistant Superintendent of Curriculum and Instruction, Superintendent, and as an Educational Consultant for the Puerto Rico Department of Education, leading the department's Hurricane Maria recovery efforts. Prior to working in education, Dr. Armstrong worked in the biotech industry and is committed to ensuring that students are college, career, and life ready. Dr. Maria Armstrong and Pedro Martinez, welcome to EdTech Insiders. Thank you for having us.
1: It's great to be here. Super excited about this.
0: I'm super excited as well. So I want to start with you, Pedro. As the CEO of the Chicago Public Schools, you bring a really unique perspective to education. 30 years of experience in the schooling system. Tell us a little bit about your philosophy about integrating technology into education and how that's evolved throughout these decades as EdTech has evolved. How has that looked in the CPS system?
2: Well, I couldn't be more excited today about the potential of what technology not only is doing today, but what it can do tomorrow. Uh, What I love and one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that no more will we ever go back where a district is not one-to-one in technology. Prior to the pandemic and my experience of, you know, in different cities, different states, different districts, that we always had an obstacle. We always had a challenge of getting to -to one-to-one. And it was either financial, it was sometimes our own philosophy about, you know, can we trust children taking devices home? What are the right devices? I mean, it went on and on and on. And what I'm excited is that's no longer a conversation. What's even more exciting is what we can do today. The fact that, you know, we're doing this podcast now, the things that I, and we'll talk more, you know, in the the interview about the things that we're doing now in our school system that we never had the infrastructure to do. And now we're doing it. And it is now part of our normal lives. It's our normal lives as, you know, in the roles that we're in. And and what I love is that our students, and we know this, have always been technology natives. So for them, it's secondhand. It has been the adults that had to catch up. And so I feel like we're just at an exciting time, both for my staff and for our students, about how technology is being used, but even more importantly, how it can be used.
0: It's a great point. You know, they talk about crisis and opportunity being sort of two sides of the same coin. And the pandemic has been, you know, such a game changer for how people perceive of technology and education. As you say, we're not going back. You know, technology is now part of the education system and all of these debates that we've all been having for decades. I think, you know, in some ways they got resolved. Now we know that technology is part of the story going forward. I'm really excited to hear more about how you're thinking about it there. And Dr. Armstrong, as the executive director of ALAS, that's the Association of Latino Administrators and Superintendents. You are at the forefront of educational leadership. 20% of all school students in the U.S. are Latino; have a Latino background, at least 20% and 25% of kindergartners. Tell us, how does the ALAS approach the concept of integrating technology into the education landscape? And how do you think about it specifically within the context of Latino education?
1: Well, I'm a retired superintendent of schools, but I worked in private industry before I became a classroom teacher. And the classroom teacher that I became was that of ed tech. So, you know, I have a different perspective I always have when it comes to tech in the classroom. And so, you know, I'm part of that breed that tools are just that, they're tools. And so going into an education system that I had left decades prior And walking in to see that nothing had changed really blew my mind for the worst. Because I thought, I've been gone so long and we're still the same setup. And so I've been a champion and a forefront leader back then as a classroom teacher. And that's because I had the support of, and it only took one, you know, that one building principal, that one superintendent who, you know, Taught that there was this thing going on and we need to, you know, expand and then you know rally the other staff around you and say, hey, I'm willing to share with you how I use technology in the classroom because it's not going away. So I've been beating the drum for decades. Coming into this space at a national level has then really helped to come in on March 1 of 2020. ILAS had never held anything virtual or online. And for me, it was second nature to do that. I immediately called, you know, five of my closest superintendent friends and knew right on. I mean, once you wear that soup hat, you are always in that mode, no matter how many times you try to, you know, yank it off our head. We are always in that mode. So it really lent itself to be able to put yourself in their their shoes and know that now that we're in this crisis The mics are going to be coming in front of you. You need to start thinking about two weeks, two months, two years down the line. And so with the rallying support of colleagues, they actually were able to be one of the first ones out nationally to say what those inequities have been exposed to because of the pandemic. So we're super proud of the support and the work that our nation's leaders out there in those schools and districts were able to do it with their communities.
0: Did you start the job on March 1st, 2020? Really?
1: I did. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that quite a moment. Uh, you were right at the crux of all the changes. That's amazing. I really like the way you're focusing on this sort of concept of community, of practice, of people, of superintendents, of administrators, of people really working together, because this is an unprecedented moment. I mean, the pandemic is obviously once in a century, but also the moment in which technology becomes a serious part of everyday classroom experiences. I mean, arguably, this is the most, you know, tech enablement period that we've seen in at least decades, if not ever. There was the beginning of the computer carts or maybe the day the first, you know, iPad got into a classroom. But I would argue, and I think a lot of people would argue, that this is the biggest wave of technology moving into the school system that we've ever experienced. Pedro, I'd love to hear some of your thinking about this shift, right? I mean, what shifts have you observed from your perspective in Chicago about the role and the importance of technology in schools in the last, you know, three to five years.
2: So, you know, Alex, what's really exciting for me is that, i building on Dr. Armstrong's comments, technology now is now an essential tool in every one of our classrooms. And we're accepting before the pandemic that it was okay for certain students not to have devices that it was okay for students not to have internet. Even though we would talk about the digital divide, there was never really any movement with it. And, and I say this myself as being a superintendent for this many years where, you know, I saw it, I wanted to solve it, but there was always these ch- these struggles. And what I love now, it's not even our, our vocabulary anymore. Now it's, okay, why isn't it solved, right? And I'll just give you a couple of examples, Alex, both in my current district and in my former district, you know, We laid out our own fiber in the community so that our infrastructure had to be, you know, and we're it's still getting finished here in Chicago. I was able to finish it just before I left in San Antonio, but we have our fiber so that our school infrastructure is strong and solid so that when our children are opening up hundreds of devices at a time, we're not seeing, you know, unstableness in the internet. We still have some works to do, you know, at the, you know, to bring, make sure the internet is at the home level. But I'll tell you, because of efforts and initiatives across the country during the pandemic, and because as Dr. Song, our colleagues were speaking up about it so much, we see more connectivity today than ever before. So now we can build on that and then really bring the classroom to life. So for example, in our district, We have a new curriculum that we have that's being, that's accessible to every school for the first time in our district's past, you know, two or three decades. That is a digital curriculum that's culturally responsive that is really going to help our students who live in our poorest communities who historically maybe didn't have access to that kind of rich content. And it aligns to all of our values. And so that's what technology allows us to do. In addition, you know, we set up during the pandemic a virtual school. The virtual school was in response. For children that needed to be educated at home. What it is becoming now, it has become a way to reduce the opportunity gap in our district that I can give more details on with the course offerings that that we're doing. So what I'm seeing technology do for us, it's enabling our teachers to be stronger. It's also enabling our students to have experiences that wouldn't have been possible prior to this technology being in place.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's really exciting. I mean, the digital divide and the lack of broadband connection and the lack of fiber, as you're saying, has been this sort of a underlying issue for so many years, for decades. When I was first doing my master's work in educational technology, the digital divide was being talked about a lot. And I think there was a, a feeling of, okay, we know this has got to be solved and we know there are people working on it, but what's the forcing function to really make it sort of obvious that it has to be solved rather than something that's easy to complain about and sort of report on, but not doesn't have to be really actually addressed. And I really appreciate the point of saying, you know, we're getting to a point where these things are coming together in all the right ways. There is now a full understanding among pretty much every level, every, you know, parents and teachers and administrators and certainly superintendents and school leaders that, It's just not acceptable to have students who have no access, especially when they're at school. And it's becoming increasingly unacceptable for them not to have home access, as you mentioned. So because the things you can do when you are connected and the things you can do when you're not connected are getting further and further and further apart. It's just becoming so obvious. So. It's very exciting to hear that, as you say, in San Antonio and in Chicago and many other districts around the country, especially urban districts, you know, where, where things are a little more centralized, it's just becoming a sort of a legacy idea that people won't have be, have connectivity because it's the baseline for everything. Dr. Armstrong, I'd love to hear your take a little bit on, on this as well. You know, this is a big country. <laughs> we have a lot of different types of school systems considering the really diverse needs of the education community in different places, especially within the Latino education community, which is all over the country, you know, how does Alice navigate the challenges and the opportunities of implementing these ed tech solutions? What role does collaboration play between the different districts, between the different schools, in ensuring that technology is really integrated and actually working for the community?
1: Yeah, you know, the digital divide is still real in many of our rural communities, and I can share with you from experience. One of the very first phone calls that I received during the onset of the pandemic was from my former superintendent where I was the assistant soup of curriculum instruction and assessment. And we had launched a one-to-one device for our our students. And it was in the northern part of California, very remote. And I literally was going to battle with AT&T, We can't get access, you know, this and the other. And I'm like, if we have access in our offices and there are accesses in the casinos on our native lands, if there's access here, then you need to open up the pipes so our kids have access. Yeah. I Great mean, it point. was one of those things where it was almost like an arm wrestle, but you have to do what you have to do. But they were the first ones to call and say, we did not miss a beat. Our kids kept learning because <laughs> they were ahead of the game. And that was at least about, you know, 12 years in advance. So for them to come back and say, thank goodness we did what we did because they used all that of time in getting like what Pedro says the adults up to speed. We provided professional learning and growth for them to as well. And that's a parallel kind of run and you run the risk, you know, because parallel uh, when you're introducing something new and you're giving them the professional development to use it, there's a time gap in there as well. And so to be able to feel comfortable that their staff felt comfortable, like we got this, that was such a huge blessing It was one of those warm moments that as an educator, you often don't get to, you know, see in your lifetime (laughs) any fruits of your labor. And so now what we do is I really pay attention to what our members are, are chatting about. And when they start talking about we still need funding, we still need the capacity of being able to lift our human resources so that they can feel that they are actually leading this charge and not depending on the kids to show them how the how to use the technology and whatnot or suggest how to use the technology. You know, one of the things that we're privileged to do as an organization here in D.C. is working with other nonprofits and on the Hill. As a matter of fact, a couple of days ago, I was able to, on behalf of our organization, sign on to the ESRA, which is another authorization bill act, to be able to continue the use and supporting the funds to further develop what they're doing. And one of the things that I was so happy to see, because I, again, I've seen this missing for so long in education that it actually got placed into the bill, and that's research and development. School districts need research and development funds to be able to do what they've got to do. We know what needs to be done when it comes to individualized learning. What we don't have is that capacity to be able to say if we could only twist it this way can we run this pilot on these kids what about these kids here and and, and being able to really get down to individualized learning that's the exciting part no more buckshot you know throw the spaghetti <laughs> on the wall and see what works no it's let's use the tools that we have today like pedro says because these tools are only going to get sharper as tomorrow comes.
0: Yeah, I love that phrase, buckshot learning, the sort of try anything individualized and personalized learning is such an exciting opportunity right now. And I, I think it's being enabled and by a lot of different technologies. I wanted to circle back to something that you both talked about, which is this idea of, I'm glad you're keeping us honest. It's not that everybody has access right now. You're absolutely right. There is still digital divide still exists. In this country certainly in more rural areas but you know the pandemic created this moment where virtual schooling became de rigueur right everybody had to be doing it for at least a little while and now as schools have opened again We have all proven that the infrastructure is there, that you can actually teach that way. And some students and families really, really preferred it. And so I'd love to connect this concept of individualized and personalized learning to what you were saying earlier about, you know, what is the future of hybrid schooling, of of virtual schooling, you know, now that we've in Chicago and all sorts of places shown that it is possible to educate even relatively young students with virtual instruction it opens up a whole world of different types of individualized instruction what do you see as the future of you know families being able to decide you know how many days a week their students go into school whether it's zero five or somewhere in between
2: yeah so alex you know i'll take a little bit of liberty and just you know for me at least just even talk a little bit in terms of my values when it comes to hybrid learning especially when it comes for kids of poverty especially for children who whose communities don't have the infrastructure that you know other communities have, and what we have seen and we've learned through this pandemic, first of all, is that our older students actually enjoy not only having technology as part of their learning, but even can flourish even in a hybrid environment. And so, you know, I want to hold that up true. and I, and I have I have really good examples for you in CPS that are happening today in, Ch- in the Chicago Public Schools. One thing I would call out though is that because of the inequities that exist, you know, across our communities. I am not a believer that, that necessarily that the home is the place to learn. So I want to separate those two things. And so let me not give you two examples of what I mean. So you know three years ago, in my third finishing my third year in Chicago, so three years ago, we had about 20% of our students that were ready for algebra by eighth grade were not getting access to algebra. For different reasons. schools were too small, they couldn't find algebra teachers but many different reasons. And, you know, this is a district that has, you know, about 20, over 20, almost 25,000 eighth graders in any given year. So when I talk about 20%, we're talking big numbers again. And these, again, students that were ready for algebra, right? That we have our different diagnostic tools and they were ready, but just didn't have access to it. By the way, all children of poverty, all children of color, just for the record. Today, as we said, almost 99% of my students that are ready, and I'm not going to stop till I get to 100, but you know how it is. It's always a journey. <laughs> have access to algebra you know as long as they're ready and what's fascinating is that some of them are having it with the traditional algebra teacher in their uh, in their K or pre-k school or their middle school. Some of them have it in hubs where picture a strong algebra teacher from their high school is actually giving direct instruction real time and I have small groups of students across different elementary schools, All with an adult, sometimes it's a math teacher, sometimes it's not, and they're working with their teacher and they're receiving algebra in real time. Sometimes it's before the school day, sometimes it's during the school day, sometimes it's after the school day. And then even for students who maybe, you know, just they struggle a bit with algebra, they get to even do, they'll take, if they, they still need more help, that extends into the summer. Right? Because there's no magic. You know, we're the ones that get educators. We get, we get caught up on the amount of time, right? Like there's no magic to the time, right? Students learn in different modes. Sometimes they need a little bit more time. Some of them learn faster and they, and, you know, they can be accelerated, right? And so what the virtual academy is allowing us to do is to do that right now. And what I love, I'm not worried about them having stability of internet or the device. They have it. But they're also in our classrooms where they're being fed. They're also in our classrooms where we know they're going to be in a safe space, where we know there's caring adults to support them. And I'll tell you, so now with this increase of access to algebra, you would think our proficiency results would decline. And we saw the opposite. They actually increased. So now more students are set up for STEM careers so they can have pre-calculus, statistics, other advanced math by the time they get to senior year in high school. That's
0: a really exciting vision. What I'm hearing you say is that there's really flexible options in terms of, you know, adaptive pacing. People can go at different speeds in terms of where and who you're learning from, whether it's you're a teacher within your school or if your teacher, if your school doesn't have a teacher, maybe it's a teacher at the next school who's doing a hub with multiple students from different schools. I think technology, I mean, I'm biased about this because I love education technology, but I think technology plays a really important role, I think I'm hearing you say this too, in being able to provide the access that people need, but also sort of change the assumptions about what it means to learn in a traditional school system. Just because your school may not have, you know, enough teachers or may not have enough access to the curriculum doesn't mean that every student within it should have to fall under that lack, that gap. There are really interesting solutions. You say, you know, before school, during school, after school, learning hubs, you know, hybrid learning in various types of ways. It's very exciting to start breaking some of those traditional assumptions about what school has to be and trying new models. And as you say, you can see some really, really positive results from that.
2: And Alex, you know, I just spoke about algebra because that's the initiative that is our biggest is the most exciting. But we're doing this with world languages. We're doing this with career tech programs. So imagine the potential for middle schoolers to get ahead with high school level content. Right. And then guess what happens when they go into high school? We're doing it also now with college courses. Yeah, they go further. So again, I'll talk more a little bit, you know, but again, as you can see, this is building and once you build this ecosystem. It is amazing because you can push our students to go as fast as they want to and accelerate them as much as they want to while still making sure we're providing supports for students who need more supports.
0: Absolutely. Dr. Armstrong, I'd love to hear your take on some of these types of initiatives as well as a part of a national organization, leader of a national organization. You see across many different districts and many different types of leaders and superintendents who have been trying different types of blends of education, different types of sharing of content or sharing of teachers to be able to individualize instruction more. What excites you most when you zoom out and look at all the different ways in which school, you know, can be changing to address the needs of students even more directly?
1: Well, first and foremost, I have waited a long time to feel hopeful again. (laughs) (laughs) I think we are just scratching the surface. And that's what makes this so exciting because, you know, for years, superintendents, oftentimes, you know, they do everything that they can with what they have. Trust me, I see it, I hear it all the time. And to be able to have a bit of a catapult into this arena now, it is really starting to blossom on the creativity that each of the communities hold. Because everyone's got their kind of niche or uniqueness to them that they can start to really color outside those lines. For me, I think probably the one most exciting is that when you know your community, that's where they get creative and can thrive. Like, you know, what Pedro is saying, their focus, that's a priority, of course, algebra and and being able to zone in on that. But the reality is that they are able to then transfer all of those types of learnings into the other aspects. You know, the dream world, of course, has always been to connect the dots for the adults so that they can connect the dots for kids because too long the kids have had to wait till the bell rang go home and then start to learn on their own now they're going to have the advantage of being able to take a hold to these different safe environments before school after school during school just like pedro has demonstrated within his own district Because where we've come up oftentimes as an obstacle, perceived challenge, I like to call it, is that we oftentimes hear and, you know, hybrid means only one of two things. You know, you're either sometimes on a computer, sometimes you're at home, and that's the definition people run with, that soundbite. When in fact, we know parents have to work, and most times if you have two parents, In a household, they're both working. So it's not realistic to think that, you know, kids are going to be at home for, you know, four days on, three days off or whatever. Instead, it goes back to that point of creativity. How do we make it equitable, accessible in a safe environment where kids, oh, my gosh, actually love to learn? Mm hmm.
0: It's a terrific point about, you know, we can't take for granted the concept that people can, you you both said this in different ways that hybrid learning doesn't necessarily mean just having people be home, if they have working parents or, you know, don't have care at home, or just don't have enough supervision, that that is definitely or don't have a digital connection, that's not going to be a really good answer. But even so, there's all this creativity happening coming out of the pandemic and just coming out of this era of technological connectivity for how to get students, you know, to the places we all want them to go and not just feel constrained by the traditional sort of rules, quote unquote, of schooling. And so, you know, Pedro, I want to ask you, you know, Chicago is a very special Place In the US, it is an enormous city. It has an enormous number of people in it and students, you mentioned, you know, 25,000 eighth graders. It's also a place that sort of had decades and decades and decades of very stark inequality inside the city from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds sort of has become almost a poster child of a place with a lot of different types of people who are, you have to figure out how to serve everyone. And I'm curious how you've addressed that and sort of thought about educational inequality and equity in Chicago and how you've seen technology start to, you know, chip away at some of these inequities.
2: Yeah, Alex, so, you know, I mentioned the algebra initiative earlier because to me, you know, when I saw the data that, you know, first I was proud that, you know, 80% of our students that were ready for algebra were getting it. But then when I saw that there was a, a large group of students and more importantly, who those students were, that weren't getting access, not because they weren't ready, not because they weren't able to master the content, they just didn't have access to it, period. And so that for me has really put me now on this mission of really looking at who has access to what offerings in our district? Because we have amazing offerings. We have amazing programming. You know, I don't have to go to other cities to find you know great STEM programming, or we have an amazing agricultural school that's one of the top in the nation, or our fine art programs, or dual language programs. But across our city, we don't have equitable access. And so what I see now is an opportunity, leveraging technology, because the challenge always is we're in a resource-constrained environment. And as you know, Dr. Armstrong said, it's not that my colleagues and I don't want to do things. We don't usually have the resources. You know, we don't have the you know always all, with all the the staffing and personnel that's needed for it. And so, and not to mention also, you know, the, you know, just you know making sure we have the proper supports and training for the staff and and support for the students. What I see technology that's able to do is it takes some of our best staff and talent that they just they've been with us, you know, they've stuck with us, and it allows me to leverage that talent across the city with no boundaries. Because I can have, you know, an amazing teacher, whether it's a, whether it's a world language teacher or an algebra teacher or an, or an advanced placement calculus teacher, and it doesn't matter where the child because, again, I have schools in every neighborhood. They have the infrastructure. What it's also allowing us to do, Alex, is, for example, we just set up a um, an initiative with one of our universities, uh, Illinois Institute of Technology, a, a very nationally renowned university that focuses on STEM fields. With them and our community colleges, we now have a program where we're starting, starting it this year with 85 students, where these students as juniors can get up to an associate's degree while they're finishing high school, goes to get a bachelor's degree two years afterwards, and then a master's degree two years after that, in cybersecurity. And by the way, so we're getting the way the students and this is eight different high schools across the city, by the way, in our neighbors that again that tend to have the higher poverty areas. And it's a model where they'll have a combination of online courses, again, real-time learning. They'll also have opportunities to be on campus. And so it's the blending again of all these amazing technologies. But what I love at the end, what are students getting access to? Great content, great professors, great teachers. By the way, what I love about the model, they built support systems around the students, including current students at the university that will be actually mentoring the students. And so very thoughtful plan. But for me, you know, I remember when we you know, we talked about this concept, it was a dream that I had, but, you know, I was always wondering, how do we get it across my city? Because I have so many high schools. And how do I make sure it's, it's also the students that are in these neighborhoods that I know are not going to get the same opportunities? And so... You know, IIT showed me again, we're gonna do it through this model that's gonna involve technology and we're gonna leverage our expertise and in infrastructure. And so that's what I see is, is such an opportunity and game changer that we can now start addressing these long-term inequities and we can do it in the right way because we're using resources in a very efficient manner, and more importantly, we're still not losing the personal touch of having the connection because I think one of the fears that people always have about technology. And this is the fears when we started getting into, you know, the, the virtual learning, that it was not going to be personal, that we're going to lose the relationship building. I'm seeing the best of all worlds come together.
0: So what I'm hearing you say, and I, I really love this approach, is that, you know, it's really about breaking down, using technology to break down barriers. And in this particular case, it's the barriers between school district and school zones. And, you know, Chicago has different areas, some of which are very high poverty and The schools are funded differently because of the tax zones and all of these things. But by having programs that reach across district that can offer high quality content, high quality teaching and professional development and mentoring, as you mentioned, from college students, by offering them across districts, you're able to avoid and and sidestep some of the traditional problems we've had with, with urban education in the U.S., which is that, you know, depending on what neighborhood you're at, you might have a, a humongous, a hugely different experience. You're creating high quality experiences that are shared and that can be spread through technology.
2: That's right, Alex. And even though, you know, we try to fund our district in an equitable way already, even our schools in an equitable way, regardless of, you know, taxing or anything like that, But even with that, I also know that in my city, I have schools who've had teachers who have the content, who have the areas that, you know, the content that our students can access, but at the same time, so for example, they have the AP calculus teacher, but for me to do that across a hundred high schools and do it in an equitable way, it's just not feasible. And more importantly for me, that's not even enough because now my students are getting access to these college level courses That are in a content area that could drive their excitement. So from those 85 students who they really are, are right now, at least as juniors, interested in cybersecurity, this could hopefully drive that this is what they want to do in a career. And now they have access to the content, even though, you know. Without technology, there's no way we would have been able to do this in the past because we would have never been able to get that kind of access to professors or content teachers. Yeah,
0: that sort of dual enrollment type of program where you can get an associate's degree in high school, where you can get career relevant training in a very hot, very growth area like cybersecurity. It's I mean, I see a lot of these really exciting initiatives as just about sort of peeling back some of the assumptions of schooling that there's you know this hard line between high school and college and you have to wait to college to get any college credits definitely not true that you know there's all sorts of things there that i think are really really powerful so speaking of sort of peeling back some of the assumptions one of the things that has been incredibly interesting dr Armstrong, i'd love to bring in your voice on this is that you know we are i mentioned a couple of high level stats, you both probably know a lot more than I do about this. But we are in a country where somewhere between one out of four and one out of five students have a Latino background, where the fastest growing population of young people in the country is of Latino origin. And I know we're talking about Latino administrators, and supervisors and teachers, but there's a really big and very growing population. And one of the things that comes up a lot is the concept of bilingual education certainly not in everybody's mind but it's important to a lot of states and it's a debate that has had a lot in especially in you know California and Arizona and Texas I'd love to hear your thoughts about bilingual education how you think about it how your sort of members of, of alas think about it and how you've seen edtech being leveraged to start bridging the gaps for bilingual education in sort of all formats
1: Yeah you know I would say that especially for our organization, bilingual education has been priority. One of the pillars, you know, we've been steadfast on on that. We have, I believe, grown to where it's now multilingualism. Right. The majority of our students and our colleagues and staff are not only bilingual, but they're also learning multiple languages. You know, when you have success in another language, And we often take it for granted, or many of us have been stifled because we have that secondary language. Now we're seeing that as the globe continues to get smaller and smaller, and we're reaching out on our own to recruit bilingual educators from other lands, we are starting to see that having those multiple languages only to to become greater and of more benefit for all the children that we serve. And so I see that that has been a shift that's been taking place. What we really like to stand on as a national organization for others is to come to our table, come learn about what works for kids that are either newcomers that haven't attained the language of English yet, because they are always learning. And as you know, kids learn a lot faster than us as adults, but we've got to be not only on the ready, but completely prepared and focused for them to be able to be successful. We talk about the career aspect real quickly, like Pedro said, you know, multilingualism, bilingualism, that is a door opener anymore for any job, not only for a job or a career, But the creators of the jobs of the future is what I'm most excited about. As long as we can continue to toss open that gate for our kids to be able to meet the qualifiers that lead them to these higher levels of math and literacy. That's what's going to open up that imagination and keep them entertained to want to continue to learn more and create be the creators of what we have no idea is awaiting around the corner. I'll give you a real quick example. We just had our 20th anniversary summit here in October and it was in San Antonio. And one of the things that I love, I think it's probably one of the best parts of, of my job outside of visiting schools and districts is being able to work with different industry leaders. And we are very intentional about who we partner with or who we bring into our space, because space is always in person, limited. There is a group of Latino-based organizers who they have gone off and they've worked for Google and Facebook and all those other, you know, industries. And, you know, to be quite frank, didn't find that they had a voice at the table for their creativity. So they wound up leaving and creating their own community, their own company. And now they're leading the forefront when it comes to, and I demonstrated this at the summit, where we can put in front of our kids now by having the use of a QR code and a phone or monitor, and we can pick what language we want instruction to take place. And it's real time in the sense that I had a conversation with Cleopatra. I mean, (laughs) think about it. We have access to everything ever written or collated on information and put into a database where I am asking the questions I feel most pertinent of Cleopatra, and she's answering me. I cannot wait to get that in front of kids because they come up with the most amazing questions. You want to talk about piquing their interest in multi-languages, that means everybody's going to have access, whether you just arrived or you're just learning a language, no matter what the language is. That is exciting.
0: It really is. And we've talked to some of the type of ed tech companies on this show that are doing the Cleopatras and the avatar-based learning and also the real-time translation, which is One of the most exciting things I've seen in a long time, this sort of AI based real time translation. And we're we're in a country where the stats that I've seen, you know, but one out of every three children under the age of nine is a dual language learner. I mean, this is not a small segment. This is not a few students out there that are learning in multiple languages. This is a huge, huge group of students you know, in California, it's over 40%. In Texas, it's almost 50%. In Texas, 49% of zero to eight year olds are bilingual. So parts of this country are, and a lot of parts and a lot of very populated parts are learning language in all of these different ways. And I love the way you're talking about how technology can sort of not only make, you know, translation and make it feel doable, but also make it feel interesting and entertaining and sort of allow people to slide between different types of language learning and different types of entertaining and interesting ed tech. And language can just be one of the elements that allows that kind of switching. It's a really exciting future. And, you know, we just covered the meta. Facebook just put out some open source content last week, basically about Not only being able to do real-time translation of voice into different languages, and they have, I think, four languages right now, but they're working on 30, but it's that translation can also keep the tone of the voice. It can sound like the same person. It can keep the expression. So it's not just that it translates it and it sounds like some kind of, you know, old-fashioned phone translation, something that feels really old. It can feel incredibly real and keep the enthusiasm maintain, you know, but be in real-time translated. It is such an exciting moment for technology.
1: And it doesn't even have to be an avatar. It can be the one that I demonstrated. It was me. So if you have that top-notch professor, that top-notch algebra, eighth-grade teacher, now you can have that across your city, across your nation. Because I don't know about you, but we're thinking... If that's the best one for that particular grade level, that particular segment of concept and and instruction, why shouldn't we have best first instruction for every single child?
0: Definitely. There's so many exciting things happening in that particular space. A company I follow called Immerse that I really like, which is VR-based language instruction where people can... Basically, getting groups and have these virtual experiences and sort of use it to learn language, but by doing something together in that language rather than in a really dry experience. They just raised $5 million today. There's some really cool stuff happening. But before I get too geeky out on, on the ed tech side, <laughs> there's one more topic I really want to hear from both of you about, and I know you have both thought a lot about this, which is AI. One of the, you know, underlying technologies is probably underlying your Cleopatra experience and it's just becoming everywhere and it has a potential to revolutionize education even further but it also has raised a lot of concerns about exacerbating inequality there's bias in ai there's a lot of confusion about whether it's hallucinating or you know who has access to using it or who can sort of has the cultural capital to learn how to use it in different ways there's a lot of concerns coming up and a lot of excitement let's start with you pedro how is the chicago public school system beginning to think about the ethical and equitable and also exciting implementations of ai in education
2: you know, for us, Alex, you know, what's interesting to me is that we know for a fact, just from my conversations with both students and teachers, that students started using AI even before we as adults, we <laughs> yes. <up> <laughs> they, they were on top of it. From the, and that's always the way it works. And because of that, teachers are now using AI. And then because of that, we started looking at piloting applications with AI. So I'll give you one really interesting example. So in our district, One of the investments we've made that showed huge academic gains and supports was we have intervention teachers in every single school so that our classroom teachers can focus on tier one instruction. What was interesting now is that, you know, we now, again, you know, in wanting to give them all the supports and tools, we started piloting some tools that are AI-driven where intervention teachers working with a small number of children. I saw like a demonstration of it where the children are speaking into the device and they're, they're learning about phonics. So this is the foundations of literacy. And they can hear back, you know, if they need to correct how they're pronouncing a word or how they're, you know, reading a sentence or a paragraph. And it's in real time. And so what I saw immediately was how it just, all it does is just empower that intervention teacher to even be even much, that much more effective working with the children. And the children love it because they're going back and forth. Similar, you know, we're seeing applications in math that are doing the same thing. So when I think about where we're at today, it really feels, you know, and we talked about this, right, that we're at the beginning of this, but this really feels like we're barely at the beginning. You know, when I think about any transformative invention that's come, like, for example, when we started seeing, you know, on-demand programming versus, you know, you remember the CDs, I remember the VHS tapes, you know, you know, the VHS tapes, I'm myself. It feels like that. It feels like things are just going to change because what I see, for example, is the potential, and I'm really pushing our team on this, is how do we look at our curriculum systems? That right now, even though it's great content, you know, they're not the easiest to navigate for our teachers. And I still, one of my pet peeves, and I don't know about you, Dr. Armstrong, but in doing this, you know, for as long as I have, I still think, you know, it should be easier for teachers to be able to develop personalized lesson plans and personalized supports and scaffolding for our students. I could see the potential of AI because our teachers right now in my, in my district, they're very data driven. We have strong diagnostics. They like using them, but to use AI, to take all that analysis, all of that data, help them really, you know, tailor down a lesson plan to really support students. I can see it. And I will tell you, Alex, you know, prior to AI, I dreamt about it because I've had experience in helping, you know, districts develop curriculum systems. But this is the first time where I actually see the technology power that is actually possible to do it, and so I am just excited about what the future is going to be. I think my recommendation to my colleagues is embrace it. You know, so when you talk about the ethics, I hate to say this, Alex, I even take issue with the way you ask the question. I would because for me, you know, I want to just go on the other side. Let's embrace it. Understand that there's going to be some unintended consequences. Look, trust me. We are dealing with some of our students we give them a certain assignment guess what they're using AI to do it and the teachers get upset and say look do you really want to fight that or really now think about okay how do we build that into the actual assignment how do we because we know it's unavoidable right how do you make sure that whatever the final product it's still you know the personal product of that student And don't look at AI as oh, this is a shortcut that they shouldn't have, right? Just like teachers who fight calculators. (laughs) Like really we really want to fight calculators, we can still have the foundations, you know, that, that students learn and then let them build from that leveraging technology.
0: I admire that stance enormously and personally agree with it completely. This is one of the most powerful technologies and one of the most exciting and accessible. I mean, you say that, you know, the students are the ones bringing it into the classroom in the first place. Technologies we've seen in generations for education. And I agree. I always have to flag that there's ethical issues and biases. But the good news is I've talked to a lot of people about some of this stuff in AI, including some of the companies that their whole job is to catch integrity issues and catch students who are cheating. And that's not, what they are interested in either even they don't want to be on the wrong side of this they're like it's so exciting and people can do so many amazing things we should not be in the way of this we should just you know minimize the unintended consequences when we can but we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater because it is a very exciting technology <laughs> i'm well, with and, you and
2: alex you know and i would even challenge us and our educators and staff that look if they're able to solve with AI, then give them a more complex problem.
0: 100%. Right?
2: Let AI be the initial assignment and say, but now I need you to do this with it because now AI has done this part for you, right? Because that's what I see AI doing. It's going to empower all of our employees, our students to even be more creative, to even have more sophisticated analysis than what is today. Because whether we like it or not, putting the stuff together, which I get it, there's a value in that, But it isn't always, you know, the best use of our time. A hundred percent.
0: It can raise the standards for what we're asking students to do, because in the same way that Google raised the standards of, you know, you don't have any assignments that say, what's the longest river in the world? Because, you know, they're going to Google it. You have to have them do more and think deeper. Now, AI can get beyond even, you know, write an essay about this or make a case for that you know that they're just going to ask AI so you say don't just make a case for it you know give me a 20 page document with all this and that and this and that and like go really deep because they can use AI to accelerate what they're doing yeah we're very much on the same page here i'm very excited to hear that perspective how about you maria how about association of latino administrators and supervisors i'm sure you're hearing about ai people using creative ways of using ai and maybe concerns as well from all over the country what is your take about ai and its potential for education
1: Yeah, so you know that I've been doing a a couple of interviews on on the subject. Of course, one of the things that I start out with because everyone wants to raise the red flag and say ethics, ethics, unintended consequences, and I said that same flag is without AI. You're always going to have unintended consequences and ethical stances when it comes to even just the traditional curriculum. And I get it. You know, there's fear in the unknown, so. We're educators. We need to educate ourselves on what this is because AI (laughs) has been around for a while. It's just now coming into the mainstream up. You know, one of the things I learned in working in private industry is that education and then moving to education is in the mainstream. We're always about 10 years behind what's going on in industry. And so for us to actually get on the same page a lot faster than in previous decades is super exciting to me. Why would we waste? I think about my experience as a classroom teacher. You know, I was using spreadsheets way back then as well, and I would make sure that Oh no, I got to know what my kids need. I want to know exactly what each one needs. And I would spend so much time creating these spreadsheets and then putting them in the graphs and creating the lessons that I'm going to do small group instruction. And I think, oh, my gosh, if I was a classroom teacher right now, do you know how many years that would save me? (laughs) Because that's the thing is you want to be able to use productivity tools. That's what they are. And so I would be signing up for every class You know, but that's the thing. If you want to gain back some of your personal life and you're an educator who puts in the hours anyways, you know, think about how you can engage and learn what kinds of opportunities could I see would be a quick transference. Why would I continue to ask my kids questions on things that they can Google? Let's move on. The cognitive learning that the adults have to, we have to catch up to what our kids need, is the fact that we can't rest anymore on being tied to the traditional and the limitations of a curriculum that is ever-changing. Garbage in, garbage <laughs> out. That's an old data term that we used to use <laughs> back in the field. So when it comes to the monitoring of what are our kids going to be exposed to, that's why I think it's so important to have R&D financed in our education systems now more than ever because it's not about the limitations of a practice to me a certain you know a best practice is so limiting it's something that is just like stagnant it's the heartbeat that's gone dead it's like we need to think bigger than that and so i just feel like if we can do everything like we've done in the past and work in parallel fashion We have committees that work on, you know, different kinds of policies all the time. Have a committee that's working on (laughs) what is it, you know, do what you got to do. But don't hold back until there's a perfect scenario to bring forth to the kids. Otherwise, you might as well say goodbye to another two decades.
0: That's true. So we are all in agreement, AI, put the gas on, let's see what we can do. It's really, really exciting to hear these perspectives. And I think that is my quote of the week for me is, we're educators, we have to educate ourselves. I love that. I might steal that for the the tagline for this whole podcast. Totally amazing. And it's true. I think we're at a very pivotal moment for what we do with AI and whether we embrace it, whether we say This is something that can change our teaching practices, make teachers burn out a lot less by making their, all that, you know, back office work they have to do with the spreadsheets automated, which is definitely possible now. It can do translation. It can do changing formats to video. Yeah, we could talk about it all day. Okay. Unfortunately, we're coming near the end of our time. I'm actually a little over our time. So I want to get both of your answers to our final two questions, but there's so much to unpack here. I'm really excited about the future of schooling when I have this conversation with the two of you. So Pedro, let me start with you. What is the most exciting trend that you see in the edtech landscape right now that our listeners should keep an eye on?
2: I would say it's a trend, Alex, for edtech, but also for education as a whole. We are seeing more success than ever in getting our students access to dual credit and dual enrollment courses. And to be clear, these are in pathways that are in partnership with industry where students can get access to internships and actually in job sharing and mentoring. And again, where technology is really making this possible, because the challenge has always been, well, how do I get my students to those campuses? How do I get the professors to the high schools? What technology has done is now we now can do that again in these different modes of learning, whether it's virtual learning in real time, where hybrid models. And so for me, you know, I, and this is an initiative that I spearheaded in San Antonio, had amazing success. San Antonio and Dallas led it in the state, great results. In Chicago, I, I say we're in the first inning, but I will tell you, it's the first initiative at scale where we're not seeing any opportunity gaps by race. I had almost 5,000 seniors in college courses last year as they were finishing high school with a record number getting associate degrees, getting at least 15 college. And, again, and we're very early, but this trend is not going away. And what I tell parents, Alex... Think about the savings you have in terms of college costs. But more importantly, it is students finding themselves, finding what's exciting them. Because one of the challenges we have is so many of our students, especially our students of poverty, for first-generation students, they're taking longer to finish college. Some of them don't finish. They come out with loans. They come out with degrees that don't necessarily get them the jobs they want. We get to do this now, earlier. And what I always tell parents we have the supports, we have the counselors, we have the teachers. We can partner with our higher ed partners and with our industry partners to give them those supports so that they're not just alone trying to figure things out.
0: Phenomenal. I'm in the middle of reading Apprentice Nation by Ryan Craig, one of my favorite ed tech authors. And these dual enrollment, these pathways, the idea of being able to get relevant career-focused education as early as possible. Like you say, it's incredibly inspiring for people. It's not just practical. It's actually really, really exciting because it allows you to really sort of see your future in front of you rather than twiddling your thumbs in a class that might not feel relevant. So I couldn't agree more. Really exciting to hear you say that. Maria, what is a trend that you see in the edtech landscape?
1: You know, I think, too, when I want to underscore what Pedro just said, how the notion of kids being able to graduate earlier with less debt, And go into fields of interest and high interest at that so that there is a closing of the gap on the haves and the have nots when it comes to education. But it also leads to that trickle effect of universities and colleges have to change their game, too. (laughs) And so in order to be able to keep up with what's going on, you can't just aspire to go to MIT because this is a niche You've got to be able to increase what your course offerings are at an exponential level, so that kids will start to look towards you as because they are coming out far more knowledge based. They're going to be looking at well, what does this school have? What does that school have? And I may be dually enrolled in other colleges to get what I want. So the trends I see that are starting to have that conversation, and hopefully that it moves from conversation to action, because again. When you have traditional systems in place, and we know that there's a trickle-down effect, right now we're seeing a push-up effect to where the demand is asking. I just finished reading The Learning Game by Ana Lorena Farabrega, and she talks about how public education, we've been sitting on our laurels for a long time, but we're excited now that those who are willing to run with leaders such as Pedro that you've been talking with this morning, you're going to find that there's going to be a rise in who wants to go and follow these kinds of leaders into education because people want to share what they've been given. So we've got to keep that intact and keep them excited to do that so that we can grow a pipeline of kids that will want to train and teach and create other kids to do the same. That's how we're going to, I think, start to narrow that pipeline. Because right now, teaching isn't a profession that many really are gravitating to. So we've got to change what we're offering as an employer as well.
0: Fantastic. And you also got the answer to my next question in there as well. The Learning Game. Ana Lorena Fabrega is a resource that we will provide a link to in the show notes for this episode. I had not heard about this when it came out in September. I'm definitely going to order that. That sounds really interesting. And couldn't agree more. You know, education is a field that just hasn't, you know, it draws some of the best people in the world. And, you know, I get the privilege to have worked with them and talk to them every week. But also, it's just People need to feel inspired. You know, when you, when you said it's the first time in a while that you felt, uh, you know, optimistic about some of the things that are coming. We've all felt that. Uh, yeah, education is it can wear you down, and I think it's a really exciting time to get some more excitement and inspiration and enthusiasm and break down some of these barriers between college and high school, between college and other colleges. As you're mentioning, maybe somebody can be dual enrolled in multiple colleges. That's really exciting.
1: And in multiple countries, because one of the things that ALAS has been, we've been working for the last 18 months and we are just getting ready to launch it on January 1. So you're going to be the first to hear about this, Alex, on your podcast. And that is we've been working with the World Education Summit, where our members and anyone that wants to be a part of ALAS will have access to the world stage when it comes to educators. You want to keep staff engaged. Let them choose from a plethora and a menu, if you will, to really individualize their learning and professional growth so that they become inspired and want to bring that back to their students. So we're super excited about that. It's no longer just, you know, the ones that we always go to, they're great. But to be able to have access to those from around the world If our kids can do that, so should our staff.
0: Incredible. And with real-time translation, you know, we'll be able to learn from teachers in any language, in any country. So, you know, that breaks down barriers yet further between educators and educators and students all over the world. That's an exciting announcement. I'd love to hear more about it. And last question. So we have The Learning Game as a resource to recommend for our audience here. Pedro, what resource would you recommend for somebody who wants to go deeper into any of the discussions we talked about today, what should they look like? at?
2: Yeah. So first Alex, we had a great article about our algebra initiative in Chalk that's a national publication that does stories across multiple cities. So you know you can look for it there. It was just recently in November, so it just recently came out. A lot of good content there. I would also just invite our listeners. Please go look at our website if you want to get in touch with leaders that are in our virtual academy, our leaders that are working on these model pathways where we have have a great relationship with the community college, we call it the roadmap initiative. Those are all things that, you know, one thing, Alex, that I always remind people in education, we're not like the private sector. None of our work is copyrighted. It's true. None of it. It's all (laughs) publicly available for other school districts, for researchers, for anybody. You know, we have so many different partners that we have, industry partners, community-based organizations. And so know that anything we're doing in Chicago, and it's always a work in progress, but it's always available. And I always, you know, what I'd love to hear from some of my colleagues from different issues, like, we just got, you know, these tools that you guys are using for student voice or what you're using for dual credit and dual enrollment mm-hmm. or your virtual school. And I always love that because they said, look, they're a working product, but they're like, God, it helps us move our work further and put it in our context. So that's what I would suggest, Alex, that know that as a city, we know the city of Chicago, 322,000 students, fourth largest district in the country. We know our place. And it's always our place to give back to our communities, not only here in Chicago, but across the country. So any lessons that we're learning, because by the way, we do the same thing. We are always looking for lessons to learn from my colleagues across the country as well.
0: Amazing. And that is the power of communities. That's also why I do this podcast, because everybody has so much to offer and share in education. And like you're saying, it's not the private sector. People are open to sharing and we're all learning together. I mean, nobody has the answers to most of these questions. But if you have a little bit of it and you can share it with the next person and they can add a little bit, you know, maybe we can actually get there. We will put a link to that article. It is called Not Every Chicago School Offers Algebra in Middle School. CPS is working to change that. And it's has Chalkbeat just a few weeks ago, as you mentioned. We will put that in a link from the show notes, as well as a link to the Chicago Public Schools you know, system and some of the amazing initiatives you've mentioned today. This has been an absolute pleasure. I really, really appreciate both of your time today. Pedro Martinez, Chicago Public Schools Chief Executive Officer, and Dr. Maria Armstrong, Executive Director of the Association of Latino Administrators and Superintendents, ALAS. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here with me on EdTech Insiders.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you, Alex.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of EdTech Insiders. If you like the podcast, remember to rate it and share it with others in the EdTech community. For those who want even more EdTech Insider, subscribe to the free EdTech Insiders newsletter on Substack. This season of EdTech Insiders is brought to you by Tuck Advisors. Tuck Advisors is a trusted name in education M&A, founded by serial entrepreneurs with over 25 years of experience starting, investing in, and selling companies. Tuck Advisors believes founders deserve M&A advisors who work as hard as they do.